Good morning, and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today, we're talking seaweed, specifically the history and future of the Maine seaweed industry. I'm thrilled to introduce my guest co-host and production assistant, Ella Keegan, a senior at College of the Atlantic whose studies, internships, and adventures near and far have focused on many aspects of seaweed ecology, culture, and industry. Our show today, which was pre-recorded so we won't be taking any calls, features Ella's compilation of seaweed voices from Maine. Here's Ella to give us the rundown. Today's Coastal Conversation is actually inspired by and built off an earlier episode called Seaweed Ecology, What Makes a Healthy Intertidal Zone. This episode aired on February 23rd, 2018. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that one yet, you can check it out via the archives at weru.org. Today's show is less about seaweed ecology and more about the history and future of Maine's seaweed industry. Seaweed has always been an important species in our ecosystems. However, now it is also becoming a more important industry on our working waterfront. Three years ago, I listened to an interview with wild seaweed harvester Micah Woodcock. It was Micah's playful and witty descriptions of Maine's seaweed industry that originally made me interested in seaweed communities and history. I was fascinated by how he tied together human, environmental and biological details of seaweed into these larger currents of Maine's seaweed community. As Natalie mentioned, over the next hour you'll hear a compilation of seaweed voices. Through these clips, I hope to weave together a story of Maine's seaweed community over time. We'll start with the early history of seaweed, including its colonial roots, and then we'll dive into Maine's diverse commercial industry today. And then to close, some reflections on future opportunities for youth in the seaweed industry. In the first part of our show, we'll dive into the far reaches of human history with seaweed. In this first section, we'll learn about the Anglo-American interactions with seaweed from colonial times, all the way up until around 2015. First, you'll hear the voice of seaweed consultant David Mislabotsky. Then we'll segue to marine biologist and Maine Maritime Academy professor Jesse Mullen. This will be followed by the wild sea vegetable harvester Michael Woodcock. Here is David, who starts us off with a humorous description of the history of Irish moss in New England. It's kind of incredible the history that we are losing in Maine because New England, we got Scott, we got Irish, we got a Welsh all the Celtics countries, they brought the tradition here. Originally, they were importing Irish moss from Ireland, which it doesn't make any sense. But I can imagine uh, south of Boston, sea tweet. That's where everything started. I can imagine those guys Saturday night after a couple of pints going down to relieve themselves on the beach. Oh, look, that's like home. Yeah. And that was the beginning of the industry in the 1850s in sea tweet. They started collecting Irish moss. 
They were drying, bleaching it, selling it, and you could find it in all the kitchens. They were even processing what they were calling sifarina, that it was flour, seaweed flour. And you had the small boxes, and it was in the house, and it was not just a jelly for dessert. You could do jellies for everything. And I still have the original cookbook from Aunt Priscilla, 100 Recipes for Irish Moss. So we, we, somehow we lost the tradition. We became, look at me, McDonald's boy, and we lost the tradition. The farmers, some, they still go autumn, winter, before it freezes, the first storms, they go down to the beach, whatever it's dropped. It doesn't have to be kerp. All the seaweeds have good stuff. They rack them up, throw them into the field. Some people, they, they, what you call, they till them in. Some people, they leave them to rot. And you have a very good start for your, for your crop the next year. It's, it's a definitely a renaissance. I claim that you don't need to use chopsticks to enjoy seaweeds. doesn't have to be Japanese or Korean. I claim that we are recovering the old colonial New England tradition. I am not fully aware, and that's my mistake, not uh, going and talking to the, to the local tribes to see if it's in their tradition. If you ask me, why not? So the tradition is coming back. The local industry is, is growing slowly, but it's growing. Next, you'll hear from Jesse Mullen. As a marine biologist, teacher, and seaweed enthusiast, Jesse beautifully weaves together human, biological, and environmental perspectives. Especially in um, non-Western cultures, seaweed has had a very long history in terms of its importance. Um, and even in kind of Western European cultures, seaweed had a, a much pronounced role in the you know, 17th and 18th um, and, and early 19th century in which it was really an important part of industry and part of people's diets. And then I think as industrialization took place, um, kind of the and kind of new opportunities or less expensive alternatives became available, seaweed kind of fell by the wayside. Um, and especially in North America, when people immigrated here, there was really a stigma of foraging on the shore as being like not not good, you know, like not advancing one's own position in society. And so I think that there was a real loss in the 18th and 19th and early 20th century of people just wanting to shed that foraging identity in general. And you see that a lot of, you know, now people are really seeing foraging as this like amazing opportunity and that there's a lot of um, history, rich history, culinary history in terms of foraging and using, using those um, locally foraged products in, in both just food and medicine. Um, uh, but I think, you know, in, in the early 1900s, people did not want to go on the shore and, and, and forage seaweed. And they, you know, would maybe have historically eaten lava um, in many of their meals or had dulse um, and, and really shunned it because, you know, you'd have to forage for it and, and you could, you know, the proper thing was to go to a shop and, um, and buy something as opposed to forage for something. Um, so I think that was sort of the, the history of it is I think people kind of shed 
those kind of um, non-refined things. Um, and it's interesting because like, I think at that same time, there were people too who um, really, you know, in the Victorian era, love to botanize and love to go out to the seashore and collect seaweeds or kind of collect phytoplankton and make beautiful designs under microscopes. Um, so it's interesting because I think like the art, the art piece stayed longer than the culinary or kind of the industry piece to it. Um, and then I think like, 19, I, I think that I think in my mind, there's just like this like blankness and like, you know, early 1900s to like 1970. I just kind of think of it as just being this like silence <laughs> um, of not, of really just that not being something that people did uh, or, or kind of partook in. Um, and, and with that kind of like that lack of firsthand knowledge just was removed from, from that whole generation. And then I think in 1970s, like kind of understanding the environment and kind of macrobiotic diets, people started thinking a little bit more about seaweeds in general. Um, and I should say like, it never left Eastern cultures. Like it never really left uh, Asian cultures. I think it's, and never really left um, maybe Polynesian cultures and kind of understanding the importance of it because I think it was just so embedded in there. And it wasn't, it wasn't something that was ever shunned. It was just a, that's a real part of the diet and that's a real part of the culture. So that's such an interesting thing to me, just thinking about that, that the history of that and the, the, the dichotomy there. Um, and then I think like, yeah, 1970s, it really, seaweeds became more interesting, mostly to kind of a, a back to the landers, kind of more of a, a hippie kind of environmental segment of society. Um, and then, but not not in all, because I think there were some individuals who recognized the importance of seaweeds in terms of um, different products that could be made. And so I think from like the 1970s on, it's sort of incre incrementally has been increased in kind of scope and importance. In this next clip, you'll hear from the energetic wild seaweed harvester Michael Woodcock speaking more specifically about Anglo-American interaction with seaweed. Note that right after Micah, we'll go back to David Mislabowski, the seaweed consultant, and then again to Jesse Mulin, the seaweed biologist. But for now, here is seaweed harvester Micah Woodcock. Uh, the rockweed, which is what most people are accustomed to, isn't used for food a whole lot traditionally. There are some, certainly some food uses, um, but mostly it's the edibles, the bigger kelps and dulse and Irish moss and things that grow in uh, more exposed places. The Irish moss has one of the longest histories of being used in, in modern Anglo-colonial America uh, of any of the seaweeds for food and you can boil it typically in milk uh, to extract the gel that's in it and make pudding um, and it, it's a very amazing gelatinous substance that has especially in the modern age almost countless uses in food products and industrial products Something happened four or five years ago. Before that, 
in the States, people use a lot of seaweed-derived products. There is a lot of agar, carrageenan, or alginate, even if the name doesn't mean nothing to you. They are food additives, but you have to read the label. The Japanese sushi revolution, the sushi wave came a couple of years ago. The seaweed salad came to Vegas like 20 years ago. But a couple of years ago, I would say that almost everybody under 35, they don't have any more the jock factor. They eat seaweed snacks, salads. Uh, there are a couple of places when you can actually buy, you can do your own cooking. Uh, I have seen more seaweed cooking books published in English in the last two years than in the previous 20 years. There is something odd, which I'm fine with it because that's my industry, but uh, seaweeds as sea vegetables, as greens from the ocean, it's, it's incredible. So the industry is growing. Maine has more harvesters. Maine has a couple of farmers that they are actually farming kelp. There are factories that they process rogueweed for farmers. Really foraging stayed in Maine, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Island. I mean, we have more culturally, maybe I'm wrong, but we have a lot of things more in common with those guys than with Chicago, Texas, or Alabama. So this block of uh, American, Acadians, French natives, we kept the, the foraging tradition. So no, the future looks good. Future looks good. So I would say that there, uh, historically, um, uh, people who emigrated to the United States um, probably did eat seaweed. Um, but but as they started to emigrate, they kind of left that historical um, uh, food. Um, knowledge um, to wherever land they came from. So there's a lot of Irish, um, Scottish, English um, history of eating seaweeds and people who immigrated um, at some point um, forgot that or abandoned that because it was, you know, poor people food um, in some way, but highly nutritious. Um, and I'd say that, you know, 40 years ago, there was a group of people in, in Maine that started to, to eat seaweeds a lot more. Um, and it's prepared in a variety of different ways. So oftentimes, if, if someone wants to go out and harvest their own seaweeds, um, they, could, they could eat them fresh. They could harvest them and eat them fresh. Um, but the more easily accessible, I think, would be purchasing um, uh, seaweeds that have been harvested. Um, that, uh, you know, people who go out and sustainably harvest seaweeds. Um, and then the, usually the, the most common form is you dry the seaweeds and then you purchase it as a, as a dried product and then you rehydrate them. Um, or you sprinkle that dried product in, in something and, and make something out of it. Um, I would say people have a perception that seaweeds uh, should only be in an Asian cuisine. Um, and I think that's because people have been presented seaweeds more readily when they go and get um, sushi or they're at a, some sort of Asian restaurant that, that seaweeds are on the menu. Um, but there are heaps of delicious seaweed recipes and dishes that are not Asian and um, in origin. 
and that would lean more towards kind of a, a European palate. Um, so, you know, there's uh, lots of seaweeds that pair wonderfully with cheeses and potatoes. Um, lots of seaweeds that um, can be uh, sugared um, and, and have a very sweet flavor. So there's there's a tremendous amount of things that you can do with eating seaweeds. And I'd say traditionally people have been nervous working with seaweeds because partly they haven't grown up having their parents or their grandparents uh, cook with seaweeds or prepare foods with seaweeds. So there's a little bit of trepidation where there really shouldn't be because it's a, it's a great um, source of nutrition um, and, and really neat flavors that, you know, for someone who wants to be adventuresome and wants to eat more healthy, the seaweeds are a great addition. That was Jesse Mullen, a marine biology and seaweed ecology professor from Maine Maritime Academy, on today's show about the history and future of Maine's seaweed industry. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming online at weru.org. A reminder that our show today was pre-produced, so we won't be taking any calls. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, and I'm joined today by my guest co-host, Ella Keegan, a senior at College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, who gets credit for most of today's production and compilation of voices from Maine seaweed community. Let's hand it back to Ella. In the first segment, you heard from the seaweed consultant David Mislaboski, the wild seaweed harvester Michael Woodcock, and Maine Maritime Academy professor Jesse Mullen. They focused on the colonial history of seaweed in Maine and how Maine's interaction with seaweed has changed over time. Moving into the present, the seaweed industry in Maine is more diverse and complicated than you might expect. In this next section, we'll focus on the distinctions and details of the different parts and communities of the seaweed industry. This includes wild sea vegetable harvesters, sea vegetable farmers, rockweed harvesters, seaweed scientists, seaweed enthusiasts, and people who are just curious about seaweed. When looking from the outside, it is easy to think of seaweed as quite a simple industry. However, in the next few clips, Jesse Mullen and Micah Woodcock will describe just how varied main seaweed industry is today. Among the seaweed industry groups, there are people who work with what they would call the edibles, so that would include most of the reds and the browns that are kelps, um, but not the rockweeds. Most people don't eat eat rockweed. Rockweed is and ascophyllum specifically is harvested um, and then and processed for a non-edible market. You can eat ascophyllum and you can eat fucus, but most people don't. Um, and so there's there's kind of the the rockweed industry, and so that's very different than, let's say, a person who is harvesting red seaweeds um, for an edible market. Um, there are people who are making food products and people who are making bath products. There are people who are extracting chemicals um, and extracting um, uh, compounds from seaweed and then processing that further for some particular nutrochemical or agricultural product. So there's lots of different things that seaweeds can be used for. Um, as far as the future of the seaweed industry, there's kind of three, what I refer to as three somewhat independent seaweed industries. There's what I do, the wild harvesting, the edible seaweeds. There's the rockweed harvest, um, which is a bigger industry. And then now there's more people aquaculturing or farming seaweeds. And uh, 
the if you based on the amount of media attention it's got, you would think that seaweed farming was like get the impression that seaweed farming is a really large industry in Maine and in the Northeast. But uh, it's still even the aquaculture is still a pretty nascent industry, um, still earning its figuring itself out. Um, and with what I'm doing, it's not really a growing industry at this point, which I'm happy for. Even the scalability of wild harvested edible seaweed in Maine is pretty small. There's room for a little more sustainable harvest, but honestly, not that much. Um, it's always, I think, going to be a relatively small fishery, and I think that's one of its strengths. And in a certain sense, that gives me con more confidence for the future, because with a smaller number of people, realistically, it can be easier to work things out amongst each other. Uh, with the really established wild harvesters, uh, we know each other and we know who's harvesting where and we have a vested interest in keeping the peace. If I come step on your toes and harvest in your area, you can come do the same to me. So uh, it's been, people have gotten along remarkably well in that regard over the past, uh, and certainly the time that I've been in the industry and then over the past 40 years from the stories I've heard from other harvesters and the people that I learned from. So that gives me hope. Um, with... The aquaculture specifically, I think one of the really important nitty-gritty details to pay attention to is that there is a level of legal ownership that is specific to aquaculture as far as leases that can be set up and then they can be owned either by an individual or also by an entity, a corporation or a business or so on and so forth, and then they can be bought and sold. In Maine, you can't buy and sell a lobster license. You don't have any kind of legal access or restricted right to ter to lobster bottom or where you can set your traps. Uh, that's determined by tradition and more on a community level. And I think bureaucracies and organizations like DMR can provide a framework within which community-based management can occur, uh, but you need a certain level of involvement and engagement um, along the waterfront and on the community as far as even just people knowing who they, each other are um, in order for those kind of structures to work. Um, and I think there's a lot of value in that. I don't want to see micromanaging from bureaucracies to try and solve every little problem. Uh, I don't think that's an effective or even affordable or even realistic way to try and get people to work out their differences. Um, so as far as ownership goes, yeah, I, I harvest seaweed and legally there's nothing to stop other people from coming and harvesting seaweed on top of me, but there are other structures, social and economic, that make that a not particularly attractive proposition, and for now that's enough. I'm certainly open to more regulatory conversations, uh, and we may need those going forward, but uh, it, we'll see. With the aquaculture, it has way more potential scalability. Um, I could start uh, a seaweed aquaculture company and start getting leases and then sell them all to bundle them and sell them to a hedge fund in New York or to a Chinese blackwater aquaculture company or some such thing. And there's, there's nothing to stop me from doing that. Um, there are some limits on how many acres of aquaculture one particular company could own, but there's nothing to stop them from just starting another shell company uh, that could hold title to those sorts of things. So as far as the enclosure of the commons uh, and the effect that that could have on traditional fisheries, uh, I'm really concerned about the future of aquaculture, but it's not growing in leaps and bounds enough that I'm necessarily losing sleep over it. Um, I'm a big, uh, f I'm strongly in favor of 
learning how to do a good job managing common pool resources rather than assuming that privatizing everything is the most efficient or sustainable way, which is, uh, there's this whole, uh, the, there's the idea of the tragedy of the commons, um, about which is a term that was coined by an academic related to grazing rights and unlimited access to pasture and inevitably it would be overgrazed and it was used as an argument to justify privatization. I think it's a false dichotomy. You can have over harvesting bad management with common resources and with uh, heavily uh, totally enclosed privatized resources. So I'm wary of those of that false dichotomy. Um, and then also a lot of people of European descent in this country, or maybe not a lot of people at this point, but certainly some people are here as a direct result of enclosures of common resources that happened in England and the so-called old world. And that's why we're here today. And we came here to get away from that. And if we're replicating those same structures and systems that we were running away from 400 years later, because we forgot about it and we don't have to think about it anymore, I think, uh, yeah, we're uh, just sowing the seeds of our own <laughs> cultural destruction. I think the other thing about kind of seaweeds in Maine that is sort of um, not explored for kind of the human dimension side is this whole rockweed um, ownership harvest, um, really complex um, kind of scenario. And so, you know, I never, I never, ever, ever thought that the study organism that I study would become so controversial. Like I study seaweed, like that's not a big deal. Like it's not, um, but it became like in the last couple of years with the rockweed kind of property case um, that went to the Supreme Court and kind of the ruling that it's owned by the upland landowner and you have to ask permission to harvest it or even research it has created all these different nuances of like what it means to different people. And so um, like, I think that's just so rich for a social scientist to want to really tackle kind of like where, where are, where, what's the complicating or kind of what's the driving value set to make people's positions take place. So is it, is it this fear of over-exploitation um, and sustainable harvest? Um, and kind of this knowledge that humans have not done a very good job at sustainably harvesting most resources that they are supposed to be stewards of. Um, and then part of it goes to like, but do people understand how rockweed is harvested and understand its life history and its ecology and make that difference between we're not taking the whole organism, you know, how the regulations are, are different than, let's say, the cod fishery or an urchin fishery. Um, or is the, is the value set thinking about kind of what the coastal landscape people have in their perceptions are, and they want to maintain the, what they think of as landscape conservation, and they don't want a working waterfront? Or is it that, you know, the largest harvesting company is an international company, and it's not a main local company, and so it's this interplay between kind of us versus them. So there's all these like really great, like complex, um, challenging issues. But like, I'm just waiting for social scientists. Like I would love for a social scientist to be like, I wanna study that. <laughs> so I think that would really help. Um, and I think it would allow for there to be an understanding so that 
there could be kind of again these new new opportunities for for youth to become involved with in, in, in understanding. So there's lots of that way. As Jesse mentions in this clip, a large conversation in Maine's seaweed industry revolves around privatization. Privatization of marine space is frequently discussed through the topic of aquaculture. But in 2018, the question of who owns wild harvested seaweed, as opposed to farm seaweed, worked its way through the court system. The ruling concluded that wild rockweed is owned by the adjacent landowner. Natalie Springle, our regular Coastal Conversations host, wanted to understand how the ruling impacted seaweed harvesters, so she spent a September day in 2019 on the water near Harpswell with Greg Toby from Source Micronutrients. Source Inc. is a rockweed harvesting and processing company that uses rockweed in health products for horses, dogs and people. So this next piece, it's about five minutes in length, is a story from Natalie produced about her day harvesting rockweed with Greg and his crew. Greg Toby and I are motoring his skiff down Quahog Bay in Harpswell. Greg is the operations manager at Source, a company that harvests rockweed, that slippery, rope-like brown seaweed that grows everywhere along the shoreline in Maine. I want to check out his operation and chat about how the recent Maine Supreme Court ruling will impact his access to rockweed. We're headed to a stretch of shore where his crew is working the mechanical harvesters that gather the rockweed into big floating nets on the back end of small, hydraulically driven barges. Greg easily rattles off uses for rockweed, including chemical-free fertilizers, extracts for nutrients. His company takes the rockweed back to the processing plant in Brunswick, where they sort it, dry it, and turn it into a powder. They ship the product out of state, but Greg was born and bred on this bay. As a little boy, he would watch the company's early rockweed harvesters rake the flats and load up their skiffs with piles of rockweed so big you could hardly see the boat. Since then, the state adopted the industry's recommendations to require that harvesters leave rockweed holdfasts, the part that sticks to the rock, and at least 16 inches of the stem behind to make sure it can grow back. Greg sounds almost like a farmer who tends his fields so they'll keep being productive. He explains how his company, Source, leaves the beds untouched on a three-year rotation so they can rejuvenate. (laughs) 
Many rockweed harvesters think that the industry is economically and ecologically sustainable. Not everyone agrees, though. The Maine Supreme Court ruled this past spring that landowners have the right to stop the harvest of rockweed on their shoreline. To Greg, this doesn't make any sense. Most harvesters believe that rockweed should be managed like clams or oysters or any other marine organism along the shore by the state of Maine. But the court claimed rockweed is a plant, not a marine organism, and that landowners have the right to decide who gets to harvest those plants, just like they decide who can pick apples from their apple trees. The court case changed everything about how Greg runs the operation. As we navigate back to the boat ramp, he explains... The ruling seems to come down to two fundamental questions. What is rockweed, a plant or a marine organism, and who owns it, the state or the adjoining landowner? For the harvesters... But who gets to decide how a shoreline is used? This complex question is something that Maine courts and elected officials have struggled with for decades, perhaps even since before Greg's family settled on Little Yarmouth Island more than 150 years ago. Building onto this great story from Natalie Springle with Greg Toby, the next few clips will focus more on the increased interest in Maine seaweed after the court case. Ari Leach, who is a Department of Marine Resources area biologist, starts us off by describing DMR's work around seaweed and discusses some of the changes in technology and data gathering. Yeah, I think a lot of people weren't really aware of the seaweed industry until it started popping up in the news in because of the the court ruling i think uh, a lot of the harvest happening down in cobscook you know that's really far down east in maine it's kind of removed from a lot of the population and people don't realize necessarily how many products that seaweed can be found in so I think it started to generate this conversation of like oh wow Maine is a really big producer of this product and it's found in everything from like food products to fertilizers soil conditioners animal feed you know like beauty pro skin products so I think it was a little bit of an eye-opener and then for some people I also feel it was you could almost equate it to like in some ways, the logging industry, like Maine has a really big northern forest with a lot of logging that happens. And now 
people are like, oh, we've got a huge industry right offshore with this rockweed we didn't even know about because nobody was really talking about it unless you were in the industry. So, um, you know, as far as having the answers to the recreational harvest, that's easy. You know, anyone can harvest 50 pounds a day per person. Just make sure you're cutting 16 inches above the hold fast where it's, you know, stuck to the rock or whatever it's stuck to. Um, and you're hand cutting, you're not using any sort of machine implement. As the rockweed industry has grown and people have seen these, you know, large har harvesting operations offshore and started to ask like, what, what is that? What's going on? And, you know, videos have popped up of uh, the mechanical harvesting and some some people find that it looks very aggressive it almost looks like a vacuum and you know sucking it off the rock um, people want more information and within the need for more information you know we need more data so in order to set um, harvest limits for the sectors we need to know okay what's in a sector okay how much is there on a given year how much how quickly is it regrowing and depending on the harvest technique, is that impacting growth rates also? You know, is, is hand harvest method, does that create a quicker regrowth? You know, so I think some of the uh, data gathering technology that's coming out right now is because the industry is expanding almost faster than management can keep up with it. Uh, and they're is a lot of interest from a lot of different people, harvesters, landowners, conservation groups. I mean, anyone that enjoys Maine and its waters has a foot in the game, essentially. You just heard from Ari Leach, an area biologist with the Department of Marine Resources, reflecting on the growing interest in Maine seaweed and the complexities of managing the resource given its growth. Now we go back to Jessie Mullen from Maine Maritime Academy, who shares the conservation approach she has observed in the seaweed industry. Um, I think, you know, in the past, the seaweed community in, in Maine and kind of, um, I'd say like Maine and Atlantic Canada um, is pretty long term in terms of thinking about individuals and companies that are, you know, decades old. So they and that um, a number of those individuals, those kind of founders of those companies, are environmentalists. Like they're very, they're very much conservation-minded. Um, that they really were so conscientious about how they were harvesting and collecting data when they were harvesting, or being um, aware of that interplay of kind of ecosystems. Before I think ecosystems were really kind of a Thing and thinking about fisheries management in the 1970s um, and 80s. And I think, and, and not everyone, but there was a number of them. Um, and I think the evolution or kind of the foundation of like the Department of Marine Resources is not based on seaweed, it's based on lobster and cod and kind of the charismatic megafauna. Um, so I think since the very beginning, the seaweed community in terms of thinking about wild harvest has been trying to advocate for regulation, has been trying to advocate for proper use of the resource in kind of in a systematic way 
And it's not been top down, it's definitely been bottom up, which I find really great. And at the same time, it can be very frustrating because, you know, oftentimes when you have a, a bottom up approach, um, it's not widely adopted because the positions of authority haven't kind of codified it in some way. But I do think um, people are becoming a lot more aware of seaweed, I think because it's become much more um, accessible um, and, and that we've really, we've kind of being a, a community of uh, seaweed folks, either on the research side of it or the education side of it or the commercial side of it, have really branded Maine seaweeds um, as, a, as a healthy, sustainable product for Maine. And that's been very helpful, I think, in thinking about kind of growing Maine's economy um, and, and thinking about ways to kind of um, diversify a working waterfront to include seaweeds in it. Um, and um, and so that's, that's kind of heightened, I think, people's awareness a little bit more um, because uh, I think right after, um, uh, Fukushima in Japan, um, internationally, the demand for Maine seaweed went very high um, because it was in a different body of water um, and that um, people really um, identified with kind of the Gulf of Maine being a clean, pristine location um, for sourcing that stuff. And a lot of those companies that source seaweed in the Gulf of Maine um, could not meet demand. And um, a number of them were so awesome and kind of intentionally saying, we're not overexploiting, we're not going to do that. Um, and I think that there's always going to be a push of like, um, and an interplay between um, folks who are economically incentivized and folks who are environmentally incentivized. And so far, I feel like the good stewards of our coastal resources have sort of held firm and, and not, having, not having massive exploitation, because I think that would just be devastating to everybody. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. A reminder that our show today was pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, and I'm joined today by my guest co-host, Ella Keegan, who compiled and produced most of the voices that you are hearing today about Maine's seaweed industry. Let's hand it back to Ella. In the last part of the show, we heard from Department of Marine Resources area biologist Ari Leach, marine biologist Jesse Mullen, and seaweed harvester Michael Woodcock. They spoke about Maine's complex and varied seaweed industry today. One of these complexities, privatisation, was discussed through the topic of the 2018 Rockweed Court case. On this topic, you also heard a quick interview between Natalie Springle and Greg Toby at Source Inc., in this next and final part of today's show about the changes and shifts within Maine seaweed industry and community, we'll start to look towards the future. Along with the increasing knowledge, information and publicity about seaweed and its industry in Maine, the question starts to arise. What is the future of Maine seaweed? 
When I was listening to interviews and talking to different people in the industry, this question continued to arise. Amongst concerns and hopes for the industry's future, the answer that came up in almost every interview was opportunities for youth. Next, we'll hear from marine biologist Jesse Mullen, and then again from Ari Leach, a biologist with Maine's Department of Marine Resources. They describe their own thoughts on the future of the industry and where there are opportunities for youth. Let's start with Jesse Mullen. You know, I think that there is multi-generational group of people right now in Maine for seaweeds. Um, I think people are, are um, open to learning more about it. So kind of on the education side and the research side, I think people, people are interested in a way that they hadn't been before. Um, and I think in thinking about kind of businesses and opportunities for growing kind of the seaweed main brand, there's a lot of really like, cool innovations that are taking place. Uh, younger generation kind of be excited about seaweeds um, and, and, and kind of want to make their, their life's work. So that's really been, like, it makes me very happy. <laughs> I'm inclined to think that the sea vegetable interest might be higher on like the aquaculture side because there's more of a there's a more diversified market. You know, you can do a lot more like um, farm to table sort of things, working with restaurants. Uh, you can do a lot more uh, with beauty products. Rockweed um, is mostly for, or is mostly found to be used in like the fertilizers, soil conditioners, animal feeds, that sort of thing. Um, it's, found in giant amounts, big volumes, and the sea vegetables take, you know, a little more time and care to cultivate. And if you're bringing it to market as a food product, there are certain markers that the growers are going to have to meet, you know, to be able to sell to their dealers or to, you know, to the restaurants that they're partnering with. But I think there's a lot of interest with the sea vegetables for sure. A lot of people wonder about, you know, oh, could a, could a high school person start clamming? Because that's easy. You don't need anything but a pair of boots and a rake. And I was thinking, could, could a young person start harvesting seaweed? I grew up on the coast. So I grew up, you know, operating skiffs with outboard motors. And I think that any youth who is driven enough to make some money and work hard shouldn't really find themselves coming up against too many barriers. I mean, the commercial harvest application is very simple. There are a lot of people that can help with that application. It's not um, cost intensive upfront. I think the biggest thing that would be like cost prohibitive would be maintaining your skiff and your engine. Um, but as far as on the industry side, I don't, I don't think it would be difficult for a young person to get involved with harvesting at all. It would just be finding someone to buy. And I think it would be easier maybe 
further down away from where all the big harvest is happening. But some, some of that big harvest is, you know, leaving the state. It's not turning around to being sold here. So yeah, I, if I were a young person interested in seaweed harvest, I wouldn't be discouraged by the fact that there are large companies doing it as well. When I was working in the biotoxin department, one of the, one of the shellfish dealers that I worked closely with has actually expanded into seaweed now. Um, not rockweed, but you know, growing kelp. So I keep seeing more and more people, you know, expanding, especially where um, seaweeds aren't impacted by these harmful algal blooms. And you know, you're not going to get shut down if there's a bloom. You like if you're growing shellfish, if you're, you know, rope growing mussels. So I think people are sort of hedging their bets and expanding their options. Um, just like people that used to clam full time for a living. Not a lot of people do that anymore. They might dig clams, but they also might have a small oyster lease too. Um, because it's a more viable option in times of low resource or when the flats are closed. So I think the interest is definitely continuing to grow. Um, I hope that the interest stays high. I hope it doesn't drop off. Um, I think there will continue to be a need, especially for rockweed as such a fundamental, you know, product in so many things that we use, you know, fertilizer, animal feed, all those things. Um, I don't see it going anywhere anytime soon. Having harvesters involved is an important management aspect of keeping the resource healthy. Um, so it's like, it's like any other species management, harvesting is a management technique. So having people that want to harvest both commercially and recreationally, you know, whether for a big company or independently, one guy in a skiff, that's important to keeping the, the resource healthy for the state, for the economy, and for us all. So, um, so yeah, the aspects that I'm involved in, just to reiterate, are um, harvest, harvest limits, um, uh, being, being a chair, being a seat on that committee um, for people to ask biological questions. I'm also a part of a committee right now that's trying to develop a technique for ground truthing to measure the biomass in Maine. Um, there's some there's some work being done with lidar technology, you know, like using satellite to mm -hmm. basically use. Um, they can differentiate between the species with like heat signatures. It's really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. So you could you could differentiate rockweed from another seaweed. Yeah, with this LIDAR technology, which is wonderful, but we have to have a way to, you know, truth that essentially to double check that that's correct. So I'm a part of a committee right now to develop a ground truthing method to go with that. And part of that is um, it's a citizen science initiative and basically developing a protocol that would be able to be implemented for citizen science groups um, to measure in a given area, like a quadrat of a certain size and come up with a, a consistent way of gathering the data and comparing it to this other method to basically 
you know, determine what is the rockweed biomass in Maine. Because we have pretty good estimates, but we don't know for sure. Um, and it changes so wildly with the harvest and with uh, regrowth rates. So um, that's something that's really interesting that's going on now that we had two, no, we had one meeting before quarantine hit. And then we had a meeting um, online via Zoom, which was harder because we're moving into the hands-on phase. We were going to start going out into the field and practicing the techniques and trying out the feasibility of handing these tools over to citizen scientists, you know, and trying them on for size. So I think keeping a finger on the pulse of the public is important um, because the public has a lot of pull and um, they are the people that keep our shores and waters and islands clean and picked up and managed. And we have a lot of volunteer networks, um, some that work with DMR to do water quality monitoring. And um, I think it's important to remember the public's role in all of this. Um, it can be it can be easy to brush brush it off as oh they're not a harvester you know they don't work with DMR but I think a lot of times someone who's lived in the same cove for 20 years and has kept record of what the rockweed looks like and has that record you know that that could mean a lot you know for for a study going down the road or I just think it's important to to keep the public involved and to listen. That last voice was Ari Leach, an area biologist with the Maine Department of Marine Resources, the agency charged with managing Maine seaweed resources. As we move towards the end of the show, I wanted to say thank you to everyone whose voices you heard, including marine biologist and professor Jesse Mullen, area biologist with Department of Marine Resources Ari Leach, the wild seaweed harvester Michael Woodcock, Greg Toby, who works at Source Inc., and seaweed consultant David Mislabotsky. During the time I was lucky enough to spend talking to and learning from them, I was particularly struck not only by the creativity, passion, and diversity of work with seaweed today in Maine, but also the ability for the seaweed community to be aware of its history while still staying open and excited to see a new generation beginning to enter. I also want to say a huge thank you to Natalie Sprinkle, Galen Koch, and Camden Hunt for production support and interviews. And finally, to keep true to the creativity and diversity of work with Seaweed in Maine today, I wanted to end the show with a song. This song is written and performed by Carl Karush. He worked for many years as a seaweed harvester with Maine Coast Sea Vegetables. The song is called The Seaweed Harvester's Song, and you can find it on YouTube. Hi, hi, ho, let me tell you about the book I know. About the wind and the waves and the rolling sea And the running of the top high That's calling me oh, When the tide is out and the water low We head up river where the calorie grows From Frenchman's up to Hobscook Bay We work the tide to make our play One eye on the weather and the other on the boat Fill it to the gunner's boys, oh she'll float. Tiny Idaho, let me tell you about the work I know, about the wind and the waves and the rolling sea. 
and the running of the tide that's calling me. Family's low and I'm not sure. Here's a pretty little cove I've never seen before. Best I love is a June's early dawn with a full moon setting and a rising sun. With a gentle swell, how the sea lays calm. We're out here alone with the day getting born. Hi, hi, ho. Let me tell you about the work I know. About the wind and the waves and the rolling sea. And the running of the tide. That's calling. Start up the motor boys, let's get her in. It's cold and wet sometimes for me. A pain in the back, aching knees. You take the bad with the good, that's plain to see. Working and living and trying to be Seaweed Harvester's Song by Carl Karish, who worked for years as a seaweed harvester for Maine Coast Sea Vegetables. What a great way to wrap up this show, because we have come to the end of our hour on coastal conversations. Thanks so much to Ella Keegan, senior at College of the Atlantic, and my guest co-producer for this seaweed-based episode. Great job, Ella. I look forward to seeing where your creativity takes you next. Like Ella, I'm also grateful to all the folks who shared their perspectives about the history and the future of seaweed in Maine. Thanks, too, to Galen Koch, who recorded some of these interviews, and of course, to Carl Karish for the fabulous song that closed out our show. For anyone who wants to know more about the seaweed voices you heard on today's episode, head over to the Coastal Conversations page on the Maine Sea Grant website for a complete listing. Thank you. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. And we also encourage you to listen to our sister program, Talk of the Towns, with host Ron Beard from 4 to 5 on the second Wednesday of each month. The Coastal Conversations theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good weekend.